Hello, everyone, and welcome to my podcast, Body Justice. I started this podcast because I believe that all bodies are good bodies. All bodies are deserving, worthy, and all bodies are whole, just as they are. In today's world, it's ever hard to embody this as our truth. My mission is to create a space to process body image, eating disorders, and relationships through a justice-oriented lens. I'm a licensed therapist in California and an eating disorder survivor myself. I know what it's like to be at war with myself and also to find peace again. Thank you for being here and I look forward to being your host. Welcome back to Body Justice. I'm so stoked to release part two of my talk with Dr. G today about treating terminal anorexia with dignity and love. We're going to get really into the maid part this um, this session or episode, I should say. Um, and so if this is something that is triggering for you or just did not resonate with you in the first one, you do not, absolutely do not have to listen to this. And not everyone is going to be a proponent of this, but I am all about centering patients' autonomy and dignity. And Dr. G is too. And I think this is a really important conversation that needs to be had. Um, it's not obviously something a lot of us love to talk about, um, but please just try to keep an open mind and understand that this is really grounded in compassion and love. And MAID stands for Medical Aid in Dying. So again, that's why it's controversial. And um, please take care of yourself if you start it and you start to feel triggered, that's okay. Pause, regulate, co-regulate, do what you need to take care of you. And again, if this is not the episode for you, that is just simply okay. So as always, you can find me on Instagram, bodyjustice.therapist, my website, www.eatingdisorderocdtherapy.com. We are taking new clients. I'm really stoked to say. Um, so please let me know if you're in California and looking for a therapist. I also want to mention that I have an upcoming training next Friday with my colleague, Dr. Jenny Wong Hall. If you follow me, you probably follow her too, as we're really aligned in values and we are putting together, we have put together an abolitionist crisis response and eating disorder care training just for you. A lot of you have been in our DMs asking, how do we apply an anti-carceral abolitionist lens to eating disorder care work? And we're going to go exactly into that. So um, for more details on that, go to my Instagram, check out the flyers. Um, also in my show notes, I will make sure to put a link to the registration. You can also find it in both of our IG bios. All right, let's get started with Dr. G. So we have Dr. G back with us today. Um, in the first part of this series, we talked about the difference between severe and enduring eating disorders and terminal anorexia. We talked about decision-making when it comes to offering palliative care and the importance of patient autonomy and current issues within the landscape of eating disorder care. So today we wanna to focus on um, another dignified yet controversial option for um, treating terminally and, and that is medical assistance in dying. So Dr. G, can you tell us a little bit about medical assistance in dying as an option for terminal AN and why it's important to bring to the conversation? Yeah, thank you so much for giving me the chance to keep talking about these super complex topics because these are not tweetable topics. 
And, and these are not topics that one can just casually come to or develop convictions around. This has to happen over a long time in practice, a long relationship with a patient, and they're complex and they need a lot of words. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to share more of my words, to try to bring clarity and peace and, and compassion um, to those for whom this may be relevant. Let's just start with what medical aid in dying is and what it isn't. I don't know the history entirely of medical aid in dying. There's plenty of other resources out there, but MAID, medical aid in dying, which I'm gonna call MAID from now on, refers to a practice wherein a licensed physician having determined with a patient that there's a terminal illness, that they have capacity to make the decision um, for, for their health care, and that they do not have a mental illness that is impeding their capacity to make a sound decision, um, may prescribe a set of medications that when the patient takes them will bring about their death. Here's what's really important first for general made. In medical aid and dying thus far, and there's some really interesting nuances to this that are just emerging in the coming year that I'll, that I'll share as well. A patient already has a terminal illness. They are going to die. They are going to die in the next six months specifically. And therefore in the limited set of places where MAID is available, the patient who is already going to die has the opportunity to choose when and how the experience goes. So a patient who has any sort of terminal illness, it could be a cancer, it could be a neurologic condition, uh, it could be, as we'll discuss, very limited cases, anorexia nervosa, who says, I am looking looking down the barrel at extraordinary suffering at the time of my death. And I know I'm going to die. So I'm going to choose not to put myself or my family through a horrendous prolonged suffering at the end of which I die. Anyway, I would choose rather to connect with my loved ones, say my final words, do the things that I want, and then in a peaceful, supported situation, personally administer to myself this sequence of medications, which will allow me to pass away comfortably. Mm -hmm. That's what medical aid and dying is. Made is legal, I wanna say in something like 12 or 13 US states perhaps, okay. might be fewer, and a couple of, of countries around the world as well. At present, for the most part, it's only available for people who have a terminal medical illness. That is, there'll be a medical cause of death within six months. Um, and in the US, which is of course the only one that I know well, somebody who seeks medical aid in dying in one of the states where it's legal, Colorado is one of those states, um, first has to receive that terminal diagnosis from a doctor who knows whether that's an oncologist or perhaps with somebody like me, then there needs to be another doctor involved, typically who specializes in MAID, usually a palliative care physician. So, um, I'll, and I'll talk sort of how this 
um, transpired with, with the patients in my article. That palliative care physician is the one who is an expert in MAID. They know exactly the medications to prescribe. They know the paperwork to fill out. There's a lot of paperwork. And they know what to look for, how to support families, how to answer questions about this tough topic. And the, the referring physician, which would usually be somebody like me or the oncologist, and the palliative care physician work together. It's always a two-doc team. The referring physician is called the consulting physician, meaning they say, I personally attest in my expertise that this patient meets the criteria, and I refer this patient in consultation to you, the palliative care doctor. The palliative care doctor then says, yes, I too have evaluated this patient's case, and I agree, or, or not, that they qualify for medical aid in dying. The patient then has to go through a series of timed requests. So they may make a first request, I would like now to receive this prescription. And then several weeks later, they have to make their second formal written request. Mm -hmm. At that point, they are dispensed their medical aid and dying medications. And they then have the opportunity never to use them, which still happens in a, in a fair fraction of patients who get made. They may choose to use them immediately, or they may choose to use them several months hence. The idea is they get to choose. Mm -hmm. No one may administer somebody else medically and dying meds. It has to be administered by the patient themselves, certainly with loved ones around them to support them. That's obviously extremely important from an ethical perspective. And it has bearing on the timing of when one use is made because you have to have the physical strength and the cognitive clarity to say, it's time to do this. I am making up these meds and I am taking them for myself. Okay. Made is sometimes called assisted suicide. I really dislike that term. For the most part, suicide occurs as a means of death in someone who would not otherwise be expected to die, at least in the near future. So the idea of calling it assisted suicide, I think probably is a way of heightening people's emotional responses to what is already a very complex emotional situation. And it presupposes that the doctor is killing the patient. This is completely untrue. The primary disease process is killing the patient. The doctor is providing an opportunity for the patient to pass away peacefully and on terms that they choose. Mm -hmm. Made isn't legal everywhere, but where it is legal, it may be used, period. Now, there's going to be people in each of those states who deeply dis disagree with the fact that MAID should ever be used and that they would never participate in it, they would never have someone they love participate in it, et cetera. Okay, that is absolutely their right. But what's very, very important to remember is MAID is law and legal in the states where it exists. So if someone meets the criteria, they may receive MAID, period. Mm -hmm. There are a couple of European countries that have permitted made for non-medical terminal conditions, including mental illness, where somebody is felt to be suffering too much and they choose to end their lives in that way. There have always been people who have said in response to their fears and, and um, disagreement about made 
there's going to be a slippery slope. This is dangerous. If you allow this for a group of people, there's going to be people who use it inappropriately, who could actually have lived. You're going to take away uh, the opportunity for, for sort of the natural process to take them. This is inappropriate. But in point of fact, um, there has not been, since this was legalized for mental health, an enormous jump in the number of individuals using MAID. Right. It stayed low numbers and consistent over time. Indeed, and I'll just sort of share this example as a, as a way of sort of where the field is going, and I referred to it earlier, Canada has passed legislation that will start in 2023 in which individuals who are believed by themselves and you know sort of judged by their providers to have mental illness with irremediable suffering no medical problems may choose to take made mm -hmm. in canada and I think that the Canadian legislation likely goes even beyond those of the European countries, although again, I'm not an expert in, in those particular legislations. But it was fascinating for me to read the article announcing this and to show the terms by which Canadians would be sort of thought to uh, qualify, including statements like at least one attempt at a full recovery programmatically. Mm -hmm. You compare that one attempt with the many, 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 many admissions towards full recovery that many people with anorexia have had, for instance. And it says in the Canadian guidelines, something along the lines of, they should have tried multiple modalities, medically and um, you know, interventionally, uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation, et cetera, to ameliorate the primary disorder, comma, as long as it doesn't unduly burden the patient, which I think is so respectful and thoughtful. So, so that's the state, that's sort of the, the basic overview of medical aid and dying. And when it comes to those with anorexia, in my paper, my patient, Jessica, not saying anything that was not in the paper, um, asked, to have access to MAID in the home state where it was legal for her. And because I assessed that she had a terminal illness, because she was not going to be going back to treatment and she was slowly becoming malnourished to the point where she would die of malnutrition. Um, and because she couldn't do what it would take in the outpatient setting to save her life and keep herself alive. I said, of course, you have a terminal illness with a less than six month chance to live. Yes, you have mental illness, but it is not impeding your capacity to make this decision for yourself. She found a terrific palliative care physician locally who specializes in this. He and I collaborated, sent records, had a conversation, and he met with her and he ultimately assessed the same. And so we went through all of the paperwork. He prescribed the medications and she held on to them for a couple of months. Her family expressed, as they, as noted in the paper, that they felt she lived longer and much better because even as she suffered terribly, she also knew that she was winding things up. She was saying her farewells. She was having her last moments and she was deeply connecting emotionally with her family. Um, and so when the time came, she was surrounded by loved ones 
and she took her medications. <laughs> I'll get tearful because it's sad and I miss her. Yeah. But she died so peacefully. Mm-hmm. Her mom just sent me the most beautiful photo um, on the anniversary of her birthday of the bench that they had built in the park where she used to love to walk. Mm-hmm. And it is a gorgeous bench inscribed with something that's meaningful to her. And they put some flowers from her garden on it. This was not a family who felt at odds with this. Yeah. They didn't want their child to suffer at the end of her life, her, you know, their child in her, in her early mid thirties. Um, they were dreadfully sad that this disease couldn't mm-hmm. be turned around, but knowing that the end was going to happen, they did not want her to suffer and she didn't want to suffer. So they were incredibly grateful for it. In the other case in which Maid was, was, was mentioned, Alyssa, as noted in the paper, was a passionate advocate for Maid for those who have terminal anorexia, for all of these reasons we've talked about, and her words are so beautifully expressed in the paper, they were written to me within a week of her death. And her clarity of thought and, and her, her self-compassion and awareness and ability to think through these complex topics in a sophisticated way, all show that even when someone has anorexia, that doesn't mean that they lack decision-making capacity. Mm-hmm. And indeed, she felt greatly relieved that she had access to MAID too. It just so happens that she died from her anorexia of the natural causes of malnutrition about three days before she intended to take those medications. So she never did take them. Which and- shows and proves your point that it's like, it's not about giving up or assisting suicide these patients are already going to die from their illness. Yes. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and, and, you know, human bodies evolved to survive malnutrition. While we, many of us know of several stories of someone who died shockingly and unexpectedly of an eating disorder, there are also stories of astonishing persistence in the face of profound malnutrition. Um, and, and so at the point at which someone has accepted that they will not live, anticipating sitting around and waiting to die slowly in a state where it is legal to have another option, at least merits the conversation. Yeah, because the alternative sounds like torture. You know, if you've, if you've actually have lived experience, of severe eating disorder, OCD. I know all the people in your um, article had that co-occurring OCD. That is torture and physically and mentally, right? Like who are we to decide, oh no, you have to tough it out and suffer longer when that person is already deemed terminal, which isn't taken lightly. That's, That's exactly right. And indeed to your point, each of the patients expressed to me that while they would have thought their OCD would be satisfied by the fact that they were not going to survive this, they were giving into all of their OCD's demands to a person they described that as they became more and more malnourished, their OCD only got more tormenting. Yes, absolutely. I see that all the time. Yeah, and so 
I guess when, when someone's going to die of malnutrition, like when you know that that's going to happen, how do you know? Yeah. How do you know that the, the person's going to die of that malnutrition? Yeah. It's a great question. I have a lot of experience seeing people with very, very um, severe illness as, as we understand it psychologically and medically. And there are studies that have identified other patient populations with regards to starvation, uh, for instance, around um, prisoners who undergo hunger strikes that identify when, you know, how long someone is likely to live if they truly minimally feed themselves with or without binging and purging, you know, it, it just depends on the, on the eating disorder background. Um, as of right now, and I can imagine myself changing on this, I would not at all be comfortable prescribing medical aid and dying medications to someone with atypical anorexia nervosa or with bulimia nervosa or binge eating disorder, even though those are serious, tormenting eating disorders, because I don't know for sure that in the absence of a change in behavior outpatient or readmission to a higher level of care, that person will die. With regards to atypical anorexia nervosa, it is not sizeism at all. It's just that that person has the genetics that protects their weight, despite often equal degrees of restriction and behaviors as someone who happens to become underweight. So, so at this point, and again, like Canada might say otherwise with regards to, you know, irremediable mental illness without a medical cause of death. That's not where I am comfortable um, yet, maybe ever. So I know that if somebody who has a history of becoming severely underweight, their body cannot protect their weight and keep them alive, and who has a history of severe medical consequences of their anorexia, makes the determination mm -hmm. that they cannot do what they need to to stay alive and they won't go to a higher level of care, then I know for a fact that within six months and often much earlier than that, they will perish of malnutrition. Mm-hmm. Right. And like we talked about in the first part, like this is a decision that's made over so much time. It's not something that just someone a year into recovery is like, nope, I can't do this. That's right. This doesn't emerge from a moment of despair. No. It doesn't emerge from a season of despair. In fact, it's been my very much reinforced clinical experience that even the patients who despair who wonder, how can I keep going on? How can I bear this? This is torture. The vast majority of them do not express that they would accept death as a consequence. Yeah. They continue to show up and fight and find little glimmers of hope. So this is not about sort of, well, I've seen my dot, 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 patient, cousin, sister, child, et cetera, despair before. Are you saying that all of those people should just be allowed to die? Well, no, of course not. Mm -hmm. This is a very different, very specific situation. And I don't know whether we explicitly discussed this in our, in our last podcast together, but I think it's worth just taking a moment to outline a broad spectrum of, of sort of treatment options during which the majority of patients thrive 
and survive. So we take all of those before age 30 and we say, let's do this full recovery, sometimes with a lot of pushing or nudging. Um, and uh, we really go for like, let's do this, you know, however many admissions it is, um, however many, uh, you know, anything it takes, let's get somebody fully recovered. As of around age 30, for reasons expressed in the paper, we say, look, I'm going to give you more voice in this. You've, you've done the work a long time now. You've lived with this a long time. Um, you now get to choose a lot of what happens next. So would you like to try harm reduction mm -hmm. as a means towards potentially a full recovery, but we just slow things down. Um, or just on its own, right? People can live or, on reduction. Or on its own. That's exactly right. So, you know, and then a big swath of people fall off of this spectrum because they either can live reasonably with harm reduction or that permission, that greater autonomy grants them the sense of ownership over being like, wait, you know, I, I think I can actually move towards a more complete recovery. Of the ones who remain on the spectrum, uh, you know, we're talking about not obviously the autism spectrum. Um, we have then patients for whom harm reduction just doesn't work. There's no basement floor. Every time they engage in any eating disorder behavior, they really begin to get more sick and complicated. And, um, and for those patients, we might say, what about occasional short respite admissions just to feel better? And then you can try harm reduction again, you know, sort of how can we, and, and we think about all of the fringe, not totally evidence-based treatments that might help. We think about ketamine, maybe we think about psilocybin, we think about transcranial magnetic stimulation, we think about everything that might help if they're willing if they're willing and, and agree. And at any point in this, if anyone says, hey, I'd actually like to be readmitted and try to go for a more recovery again. Yes, great. If that doesn't work, um, because of course we have a bunch of people who do pretty well in that, then we get to more of a palliative care perspective where we don't think someone's on the brink of death, but they're also living below a harm reduction level because they're they're not able to thrive in ways that are con consistent with their values. They're really sort of living on the margins. And we say, I wanna do everything possible to ease your symptoms physically and emotionally and, and keep you as well as you possibly can be. Um, I accept that we may be heading towards a place where you can't survive this and I'm here to support you. Even in that moment, being granted the validation and the permission will often put people back into the recovery cycle and they'll, they'll, they'll say, wait, that's so helpful to hear, you know, sick as it may be that that's where I am, but no, I, I don't accept death. I have movies to see. I have ne nephews to welcome into the world. I, you know, I'm, I'm going to fight differently mm -hmm. and they do. So they fall out. It's only when that group sort of cannot still, it doesn't work enough, they're continuing to get sicker and weaker, that we start to say, look, this is looking more like terminal anorexia. Do you, you know, is that what you feel as well? We're down to a very tiny patient population at this point. Mm -hmm. And we start thinking about a hospice referral and support in anticipation of a death within six months. Mm 
And then it is only a tiny fraction of those individuals who both live in an area where MAID is available and will choose to acquire it and will choose to use it. And they are at the very, very end of the spectrum of a very tiny fraction of the overall patients. Mm -hmm. Makes so much sense. Um, yeah, it's, I think that's the thing to highlight is like for the, I'm sure thousands of patients you've seen, right? You've had three that have actually explored this and two that actually used it. And only one who actually took it. A one who actually took it. Yeah. yeah. Because the other died of natural causes. That's right. right. So it's, it's, I'm curious, like, how has your experience been with, um, when you have to work with the palliative care doctor and get that second sign off in, in being able to sort of express and advocate for terminal AN since I would assume most doctors don't have a lot of awareness of. Yeah, that's a lovely and a really relevant question. It was actually in the process of the advocacy with groups like this that I realized the original terminal anorexia paper had to be written because in some of the cases, the doctors would ask, what's the literature on this? And I would have to say, you know, to my amazement, despite high death rates, there's no literature on this, mm -hmm. sorry. And so that really puts these patients and their families at a grave disadvantage because then there's no advocacy for them. And they're really left alone and suffering, which is not okay in someone who has a terminal illness. So um, for the most part, I simply adore working with palliative care and hospice doctors. I just find them to be a wonderful field, so compassionate, thoughtful, flexible, gentle. Um, and, and there have also been times when, you know, there's been pushback, like, is this terminal? Doesn't this patient just have to eat? Mm -hmm. You're like, well, okay, let's sit and talk. We're gonna have <laughs> a conversation that, you know, you and I have been having this whole time. Like, yes, nutrition would, re would resolve the medical risk of death and the, the malnutrition, how are you going to get them nourished? Right. And everything it's else has failed. Yes. It's a question of how you would do this. And these patients no longer feel that there's anything that would help them become nourished in a way that would be life-saving. And stay nourished, right? Because I think and I was going to say last time, everyone at some point had weight restored um, or nutritionally rehabilitated, but then it wasn't sustained. Well, and in this group of patients, one of the complexities actually was that only Aaron had fully weight restored of these three patients, mm -hmm. which was controversial too. Mm -hmm. Fairly. I always want my patients to have done at least one good recent full weight restoration because we know the brain works differently when someone is nourished. Yeah. No question about it. That is the standard I try to hold people to. Um, in the two women who were mentioned in this study, they simply could not tolerate being in these treatment programs where that could happen. Right. That was suboptimal. I always wonder, you know, what if, what if they could have stayed in treatment and tolerated it and been less sensitively wired or less previously traumatized such that they could have done that work. But I mean, sort of, you could use that kind of a theoretical, what if, what if a different cancer treatment had been invented before this person got to, well, you know, that's a nice what if, but if they won't do it and they meet all the other criteria, 
it is literally impossible to shame them and transport them to a state, to a program, if there's a payer source, all the stuff we talked about. So to be very clear, I always want patients to have fully weight restored if there's any way humanly possible. And we did all sorts of things with harm reduction attempts to try to move them into a space where they could tolerate it and they could not. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, I think it just makes so much sense to me um, because not everyone's the same and treatment, like we talked about last time, often fails people. It's not, you know, there's so many issues. So it's not just that this person won't do it, right? It's that everyone is individualized and has different needs in recovery and has different recovery experiences. Um, and unfortunately, the current landscape with care does not encompass everyone. That's right. um, so I find this just really compassionate and, you know, really centering that person's autonomy. Um, I really appreciate that perspective. That is obviously one that I share with you. I think it's also important to identify a logical gap that can occur. So if somebody wants to say there can be no such thing as terminal anorexia, or even if there were, there should be no such thing such as made, putting aside the fact that again, it is legal where it's legal. The idea there is if we don't name it, then the person will survive. Mm -hmm. And the reality is, is that both um, a death under the care of a hospice organization, attending to pain, anxiety, shortness of breath, and the physical needs of a hospital bed and other durable equipment, and if it's elected, a death by medical aid and dying, they are dignified deaths. Yes. They are compassionate, dignified deaths. And Dr. Yeager gave a great example in a recent paper that we've completed that will be out by the time this podcast has been shared, um, that in fact, instead of survival, patients who don't receive this care have death with indignity. Yes. They choose to die by suicide. That's the um, number one cause of death in Anne. So, you know, what we have to really recognize there is that it's not that the other alternative to naming and treating this properly is life. Right. Death with indignity. Right. And who gets to decide our right to die, right? Like none of us consented to living, let alone living with chronic physical and mental health conditions. Um, so to me, it's just very, what's the word I'm looking for? Very, um, I can't think of the word, but oh, ignorant. It's very ignorant to think that like, you know, we get to decide what someone else does with their body. Um, I'm wondering, you know, with how controversial this is and also just like the emotional taxation this probably takes on you and the families, how do you take care of yourself in these moments? Mm, that's a really lovely question. Are we talking about how do I as a clinician take care of myself when I have a patient who will die of their anorexia? Yeah, I, I imagine it's so heartbreaking at the same time as, you know, all these other things. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And it's, it's really compassionate to ask. You know, having been really dedicated to end of life considerations since I was in med school, as we talked about in our prior podcast, um, 
I think that I've learned ways that do help me, but I always remember that I'm not the primary one actually suffering here. It doesn't mean that I think that I don't have needs or I don't have to attend to them. Of course I do, but I do take as a first step that I'm not the one primarily suffering here. It's the patient and their family. Second, I have the most wonderful team in the world. Mm -hmm. And so with my clinical team, I will sit, we'll talk about the cases. I might cry, they might too. We really talk through things to make sure that we've thought of all the angles and they're so loving and supportive and values congruent with, with my, my philosophy here. Um, I also, you know, um, my sacred text happens to be poetry. Mm. I'll often read poems that really mean something to me in, in times like these to ground myself and to think about, you know, what, what matters here and why I'm doing this work. Um, that I'm not doing this work in order to give myself the minimum amount of sorrow or feeling. <laughs> I'm doing this work to serve others. And it is acceptable for me to suffer a little bit in the meantime, because I, I do love these patients. I love them so much and they know it. And I, I wrote the first paper and their long stories as a love letter to those patients and to others like them who could see themselves in some of the details. So I think Alyssa so beautifully expressed it that the work that we did together, it's as quoted in the paper, she called it a tremendous act of love, mm -hmm. which is so helpful. So in the midst of the grief and, and of sitting with you know, the, the parents who weep during sessions and the patient who does, the other providers who do. I think, I think when you come back to grounding yourself in the deep love that motivates this, it elevates the pain mm -hmm. the place where it has a meaning. And I think that that helps. That makes a lot of sense. It's, it's motivated by love. Um, yeah, that's so beautiful. Is there anything else you want listeners to know about MAID or terminal anorexia? I think what I want them to know is that certainly 99.8 or 9% of the work I do is about being life bringing, mm -hmm. life reasserting on, on grounds that the patients choose for their own bodies and that I use my medical expertise to help them with that I believe that as long as any given patient feels hope for their own recovery, I do too. Yes. And that these criteria, this discussion can never ever appropriately be used to deny somebody care because the quintessence of the clinical characteristics includes number four, which is that the patient themselves over time consistently identifies that they accept that death will result if nothing is changed. No one can put that on someone. No one can say, well, you have terminal anorexia now, so you can't get care. Right. Never. It cannot happen if we are truly going by what we wrote. Right. And that's so important to me. That's amazing. Thank you so much, Dr. G. This was just such an important conversation. And I know you've gotten pushback for this stuff, but I mean, I think it's still overwhelmingly clear how compassionate and, and, and knowledgeable you are in terms of medical care and eating disorders. Um, my, so for that. Yeah, my clients and I talk about your work all the time. And 
colleagues and yeah so i'm i'm grateful for you putting out these conversations because they're needed and just like we talked about before we recorded like bringing these sort of controversial discussions to light is very important because if we don't talk about it who is you know and and we're missing people people are falling through the cracks yeah i really appreciate you're giving this conversation breath because i so see how your questions allow the discussion to go deeper they allow people to see the heart and the soul and the the thinking behind all of this and they recognize that this shouldn't be one of those topics that people just decide to get up in arms about there's too much immediacy to arms in our society we need to be understanding that people with rare problems deserve our advocacy and love and that it is my job to try and be as clear as possible in my communication so that we know what we're talking about and what we're not talking about. So I hope so much that those listening to this will understand that it's a far more complex topic than a quick snap to judgment, read a headline and express an opinion. Right, it is a years long decision. It is a decision that no one's making by on their own, right? It's a full team of people. Um, and ultimately we're centering the autonomy and dignity of, of the survivor. Or That's most important. Yes. Well, where can listeners find you in case they haven't heard of you, but I'm sure they have, but. <laughs> Thank you. Our website is www.gaudianiclinic.com. That's G-A-U-D-I-A-N-I clinic.com. We're also on social media at Gaudiani Clinic. And that's, you know, for all of the medical wonders that we're doing with our patients and all of the breakthroughs that we're trying to support in, in helping treatment become better and for patients' lives to be led better in addition to this narrow topic that applies to so few. Yes. Well, thank you so much. And I can't wait for the next time we have another podcast about something amazing and needed and controversial. <laughs> thank you, Allison, so much. 